Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number four, 1 Samuel chapter 2. I prepared you uh, a little bit last week for what we're going to study today. Hannah's prayer or Hannah's song. And this 10 verse segment that introduces 1 Samuel chapter 2 isn't particularly familiar to the church because it's kind of buried deep within that much maligned Old Testament. However, Judaism sees it as forming a central tenet of Yehovah worship generally on par with the Shema and the Ten Commandments. Now we're going to look at it in depth and then attach it to the principles it speaks about that appear later on in the Bible. Now interestingly we will find that Hannah's prayer becomes a model for some important New Testament passages. And in some cases it's simply is directly quoted. At other times, it's somewhat paraphrased. Now, last week's lesson was pretty technical. This week's will have a significantly different flavor as we're going to take one of our famous detours towards the end of this lesson that's going to extend, by the way, into the following week. And eventually, we'll get into a section of the Bible that I think is going to surprise you a little bit. Let's reread Hannah's song, which is uh, Second, uh, Second Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2. Try that again. Verses 1 through 10. 299 in the complete Jewish Bible. 299 in the complete Jewish Bible. Then Hannah prayed and she said, My heart exults in Adonai. My dignity has been restored by Adonai. I can gloat over my enemies because of my joy at your saving me. No one is as holy as Adonai because there is none to compare with you, no rock like our God. Stop your proud boasting. Don't let arrogance come from your mouth for Adonai is a God of knowledge and he appraises actions. The bows of the mighty are broken while the feeble are armed with strength. The well-fed hire themselves for bread, while those who were hungry hunger no more. The barren woman has borne seven. The mother of many wastes away. Adonai kills and makes alive. Adonai brings down to the grave and he brings up. Adonai makes poor and he makes rich. He humbles, he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the trash pile. He gives them a place with leaders and assigns them seats of honor. For the earth's pillars belong to Adonai. On them he has placed the world. He will guard the steps of his faithful, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. For it's not by strength that a person prevails, Those who fight Adonai will be shattered. He will thunder against them in heaven. Adonai will judge the ends of the earth. He will strengthen his king and enhance the power of his anointed. 
How might we best characterize these few passages? I suggest that it's very much a psalm of thanksgiving. It has the same soaring tone as many of David's psalms. Hannah's prayer is a psalm of joy, a psalm of gratitude for her deliverance. But it's also unmistakably prophetic and messianic in its nature, as were so many of David's. Now, Hannah's personal experience with God is the force behind this prayer. And those experiences are expressed here in such a way in this psalm that it actually results in a beautiful and profound statement of Yehovah's unrivaled holiness and his nature. Now, Hannah is like Job. She has found herself receiving great affliction from the Lord for reasons unknown. However, she's also found herself now receiving the greatest mercies and blessings from the Lord, also for reasons unknown. All of the Bibles, great saints and heroes have expressed to some degree or another this same kind of mysterious and perplexing experience with God that seems to go with the territory. So it both surprises and baffles me as to why it has become somewhat normal within the church of the modern age at least to proclaim that today we can only expect blessings and mercies and never afflictions from the Father's hand. I fear that such a nice-sounding but erroneous doctrine as that one has caused many believers to lose faith when calamity suddenly and inexplicably invades their otherwise peaceful and pious lives. Or even worse, that such an unexplained and seemingly undeserved affliction can cause a believer to question God's judgment. And yet on another level, while this psalm is but one individual's fervent and moving prayer, inspired by her own personal salvation experience, it also applies to all Israel as a nation. And as we begin examining this psalm, verse by verse, I ask that you keep something crucial in mind. Hannah's song is every bit as much for the church as it is for Israel. Further, understand that what is proposed here, instructed here, exposed here, applies only to God's set-apart people who at one time were Israel and Israel alone, but with the advent of Messiah, it now applies to all who call upon His holy name and are thus spiritually joined to Israel. Now, this is probably also an appropriate time to remind you that the principles of the Bible are not for the unbelieving world. 
They're only for God's people. Certainly the pagan world is spoken about and at times referred to in God's word. And they are encouraged to join Israel's covenants. But the mention of pagans is primarily for the purpose of contrast and comparison. Thus, God's laws and commands aren't for the world at large. They're only for His elect, for His followers. Now, I've said many times that if humanity could correctly follow the law without the Lord, there would have been no need for Jehovah to first redeem Israel and then only after their redemption give them His laws on Mount Sinai. The order of redemption first and then learning and following His commands second is critical. Without the Holy Spirit as our guide, no one, including the nation of Israel, can even hope to carry out the Father's commands in the manner and spirit they're intended to be carried out. So I repeat, and and hear me please, this is important, there is no reference to the pagan, uh, pagan world in this psalm, in Hannah's song, No contrast with the pagan world is even remotely suggested in these passages. It's all about God's people, the good and the bad, and those joined to His people. After we're done thoroughly studying these ten verses, I'm going to show you why Hannah's prayer's lack of pertinence to the pagan world is so critical for us to realize. Now the first three verses speak of Yehovah's holy sovereignty. And so are the truest form of praise and worship. They are much like an Old Testament version of the Lord's Prayer. Thus the reason for Hannah's Joyful exuberance is placed right at the Lord's feet. Just as much as the reason for her deep despair had been placed at his feet. Her heart, she says, exults in the Lord. Now two things about that short statement. The Hebrew word for heart is lave or lave. And while heart is, is the proper translation, definitely correct in its literal meaning, its sense for us is not literal. At least not literal for we moderns. Just like when we say that we're heart sick, it doesn't mean that our heart muscle has a disease. It means that it's just a common way of expressing expressing that we're emotionally despondent. And we use that kind of a term because we tend to attach emotions to the human heart. However, recall that I have brought to your attention that throughout the Old and New Testament eras, the heart was thought to be the place where the intellect and the mind resided. The function of the brain was unknown at that time. It was the kidneys and the liver 
where the academics of those ancient days believed that our emotions were housed. So Hannah was saying that her mind, her thoughts, her consciousness exalted in the Lord. This was not a purely emotional outburst. The second thing we'll find in this short stanza is that where we see the word Lord in most Bibles or Adonai in the complete Jewish, in reality the word is Yehoveh. Every verse, every stanza of this psalm where we see the word Lord, Hannah was actually mouthing and saying out loud, Yehoveh. She felt perfectly secure and justified to speak to the Lord using his formal name. You know, in fact, it's a rather more intimate thing to do than to call him by a title. In the next stanza, Hannah speaks of her horn rising up in the Lord. I mean, what a strange statement. Hebrew scholars and sages have always known the general sense that is meant by the Hebrew word Karen. But what it specifically meant to the ancients is less clear. The complete Jewish Bible translates Karen, horn, as dignity. Other versions will translate it as might, or perhaps strength, or even victory. In some ways, each of these are reasonable translations. But if we added them all together, we'd get a much more complete and better sense of what Hannah was thinking. Her dignity, her strength, her victory, all of this resides in God. Now since the word horn appears in the New Testament, and it especially is noticed in the book of Revelation with that strange beast, all right, with the ten horns and then this bigger one that shows up, Let's spend just a moment more in trying to understand what the intent of that word is in the Bible when it's used in these contexts. In the ancient Middle East, the bull or the ox was probably the greatest and highest symbol of strength and authority. And the part of the bull or the ox that was the focal point was its horns. It was the horns of the bull where its fearsome strength and ability to project power lay. Thus it was not that Hannah was was speaking or envisioning the literal horns of an ox, but rather it was just an expression of authority and power that was used by herding and farming societies that and all this was regularly used to refer to the, to the attributes of a king. And in this case, since it said that it was the Lord who raised Hannah's horn, then it means that she was conspicuously fortunate and victorious. For Hannah, her loss of dignity by not being a whole woman 
was restored. Her horn was raised. Thanks be to God. For the beast of Revelation, the horns aren't literal either. Rather, they are figurative speech that reveals ten rulers who have the strength and might that comes with their leadership roles. This eleventh horn that eventually appears, who most identify as the Antichrist, is mightier than they are and thus lords over them. Now the thing to notice is the contrast between the horn of Hana as opposed to the horns of the Revelation beast. The horn of Hana and Israel's coming monarchs are raised up by God. The horns of the beast, the might and power of the beast, are raised up by Satan or by men influenced by Satan. Hana's kind of horn is God-ordained. The other kind is man or demon-ordained. Hana's kind of horn cannot be defeated. The other kind of horn is destined to be defeated. Well, next, still in verse 1, another archaic saying is used when Hannah says that her mouth opens wide against her enemies, which is the most literal translation of that part. Our complete Jewish Bible says Hannah can gloat. They choose to use the word gloat over her enemies, which is probably fairly close to the intent of the expression. But gloat is likely not quite strong enough because in other places in the Bible where this approximate expression is used, it means to swallow up the enemy. It's another way of expressing absolute victory over one's enemies to the point that they effectively cease to exist. But who is the enemy? in this case. First, it is not the only person that could even be remotely suspected as Hannah's enemy, at least at this point in the story, Penina, her rival co-wife. Okay. As much as Penina mocked Hannah, they were certainly not enemies. Rather it is that an enemy as envisioned here was a rather general term for that age. An enemy was anyone who might someday want to harm you. This was tribal society. So, even if another local tribe was a brother tribe of Israel to you, the fact remained that there was a never-ending battle for dominance that often spilled over into kidnapping and bloodshed. Many of the Middle Eastern societies were, and they remain, marauders and bandits. And it was, and still is, seen as a rather legitimate, even though it's a problematic, occupation. So in that sense, they were your enemies. Now remember, there wasn't any police force that existed then. And in tribal society, it was the norm 
to acquire wealth by taking somebody else's. So everybody had enemies. It was just part of everyday life. However, in the context of this verse, the idea thus far in the song of Hannah has been that the Lord is responsible for everything. And he's given credit for everything. Thus, since Hannah's horn, her dignity and her strength has been raised up, meaning restored or established by the Lord, then, so are Hannah's enemies, now the Lord's enemies, and vice versa. And the Lord will see to it that Hannah, through his mercy and grace, receives victory over what are now their mutual enemies due to Hannah's conspicuous relationship with Yehovah. Now think about that for a minute. Okay? As believers and worshipers of the God of Israel, his enemies are automatically our enemies. But our enemies are also automatically his enemies. And he will save us from them. Now what a dangerous mistake we make when we side with those who openly stand against the Lord. When we side, even for what might seem like a good reason, with those who are his enemies. This has happened in various ways over the centuries within the church. But most recently, we find Christian leaders and many of their followers siding with the Muslim world, with the Palestinians, against God's people and his land, Israel. Being part of the body of Christ hardly makes us immune from such destructive error and rebellion. And next week, I'm going to demonstrate that principle to you in a way that I think is going to jar many of you who are listening. Then in the last few words of this first verse, still this first verse, we get a stunning statement if we view it in the original Hebrew. Our complete Jewish Bible says, that Hannah has joy at your saving me. Most other versions say something like, I have rejoiced in your salvation. Two ways of saying the same thing. But in Hebrew it says, I have rejoiced in your Yahshua. I have rejoiced in your Yahshua. Isn't that amazing? I have rejoiced in your Jesus. Of course, no one, including Hannah, could possibly have thought in terms of this also being the formal name of the coming Messiah, the eternal King, Yeshua, which means God saves or salvation. But you know, that's just the nature of God's inspiration upon men and women that Hannah could mouth the very name of the Christ who would come 1,200 years later in this kind of a context and without even realizing it. But look what that means to us now. 
Verse 2 goes on to express a concept of Yehovah that was only now beginning to catch on in Israel. That Yehovah isn't just Israel's only God. He's also the only God in existence. In other words, verse 2 embodies a statement of monotheism. Hannah also says that there is no rock that can compare to Yehovah. The term rock had become a common epithet for God in Israelite culture, and it was slowly and steadily evolving in the Hebrew language as a term that would have messianic significance until we finally reach the New Testament when rock became firmly attached as an epithet of the Messiah, who, as it turned out, was God. But I think an even greater blessing is to be had for us. If we connect what has just been stated here and in Hannah's song generally with what the earthly mother of Yeshua is recorded to have said in Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, 46 through 55 is, among some denominations, given a special title. It's called the Magnificat. Okay? And it is patterned precisely. You'll recognize it. It is patterned precisely after Hannah's song. Alright? And is actually more or less of a paraphrase of it that is spoken by Miriam, Mary, about the coming birth of Yeshua HaMashiach. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, that's page 1288. Let me read this for you. I'm going to begin actually at uh, verse 39 just to help set the context. Without delay, Miriam set out and hurried to the town in the hill country of Yehuda, Judah, where Zechariah lived, entered his house and greeted Elisheva. When Elisheva heard Miriam's greeting, the baby in her womb stirred and Elisheva was filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and spoke up in a loud voice, Oh, how blessed are you among women, and how blessed is that child in your womb. But who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Indeed, you are blessed, because you have trusted that the promise Adonai made to you will be fulfilled. Then Mary, Miriam, said, My soul magnifies Adonai. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, who has taken notice of his servant girl in her humble position. For imagine it, from now on all generations will call me blessed. The Mighty One has done great things for me. Indeed, his name is holy, and in every generation he has mercy on those who fear him. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm, routed the secretly proud, 
brought down rulers from their thrones, raised up the humble, filled the hungry with good things, sent the rich away empty. He has taken the part of his servant Israel, mindful of the mercy which he promised to our fathers, to Avraham and his seed forever. Now, that sounds a lot like Hannah's prayer, doesn't it? So here we have a direct connection from Hannah's prayer to Mary's prayer. Hannah's prayer had messianic overtones. Mary's prayer was directly about the Messiah. Hannah saw the Redeemer as God up in heaven. Mary sees the Redeemer as God incarnate. And after Hannah praises the Lord for His incomparable holiness and righteousness, starting in verse 3, she addresses the community, meaning Israel in general, and she tells them how they ought to behave before their God, considering who they are in Him. And she tells them not to be proud or boastful. And of course, this is because, as Hannah has learned, in the end, God decides all, despite humankind's typical belief that we're in control. You know, this brings back a memory for me. My dad had a 52 DeSoto. There's a name from the past. And when I was about four or five years old, he bought a little plastic steering wheel with a rubber suction cup so that I could sit next to him and I drove that car as far as I knew for all I was worth. I was driving it, I was honking the horn, I was stepping on my brake. That picture has stuck with me to this day as how it is in my experience with God and how it is for us. He's in control. We only think we are with our little rubber steering wheel. (laughs) Well, at the end of verse 3 is the phrase in the complete Jewish Bible, and he, God, appraises actions. Now, most Bible translations will say something like, and by him, meaning God, actions are weighed. The key word is weighed, which the editor of the complete Jewish Bible says means appraises. The Hebrew word that causes the difficulty is tachan. And while appraise isn't wrong, I think it kind of misses the point. But simply transliterating the word weighed causes its own misconceptions. Tachan weighed has to be envisioned in how items were actually weighed in ancient times. And that was by means of a balance scale. See, the idea was to put a known weight as a standard on one side, and then an amount on the other side that would bring the two trays into balance. 
or it was to put an agreed amount on one side and then a matching amount on the other so that equality was achieved. So in old times, Bible times, to weigh something didn't mean that the purpose was to determine how much an item weighed. Rather, it was to make the two sides of the scale equal or level. That's the idea here. God is the one who brings fairness and balance to every situation according to His standard. Thus, in the next several verses, we see God weighing human actions, which means bringing them into balance all right, according to His justice. And in many cases, what that entails is divinely reversing whatever the current, and could be said as natural, situation. So begins a series of couplets that contrasts the fates of the strong and the weak. In verse 4, it says the bows of the mighty are broken, but those who have no power are given strength. This is God weighing, takan, bringing the two disparate groups into balance. In verse 5, those who have an abundance of the best food because they're wealthy suddenly find themselves having to work for a wage just to purchase enough to buy the basic food staple, bread. But this is contrasted with those who barely had enough often went hungry, but now they have plenty. They're never going to hunger again. God is intervening in the affairs of men. Changing the natural order of things, at least natural from man's viewpoint, okay, and then bringing it all into balance. And the last half of verse 5, Hannah thinks of her own situation and says that the barren woman miraculously bears seven children while the fertile woman with many children wastes away the number seven is a symbolic number that indicates fullness completeness it's the ideal number so the naturally barren woman is blessed by Jehovah with a full complement of children while the naturally fertile woman with many children suddenly finds herself brought low. From the perspective of that era, that means that her children have either died or abandoned her, leaving her without means of support. Not necessarily that she's ill, wasting away. Now starting in verse 6, while we continue to see a series of contrasts and a reversal of fortunes occurring. The emphasis shifts more to describing God's true inherent nature, His power, His holy sovereignty over all matters, that Jehovah kills and makes alive, it says, is a way of saying that God reigns supreme over life and death. This is a good example of a rather common literary device called merism, whereby the idea is to 
kind of state the outermost boundaries of possible outcomes of a circumstance as a means of saying everything concerning not only what's stated, but everything that lies in between. From A to C, from beginning to end. But notice something. This statement about him killing and making alive is not as simple as saying that the Lord reigns over the dead and the living. Rather, this is making clear that the Lord kills. He actively and purposely ends life. On the other end of the scale is that God creates life. He actively and purposely takes that which did not have life and injects it with life. The first half of that statement is something that a lot of Christians rail against. Okay? But this theme is repeated over and over throughout both Testaments in our Bibles. The Lord will kill. He does take away life. This is active, not passive. The Lord doesn't just stand aside and allow life to be taken. At times he will personally intervene and commit a divine execution, if you would. And I remind you of what I said at the start of this section. Remember, this is not pagans that are being killed in contrast to God's followers who are being made alive. This section of scripture, Hannah's song, concerns only God's redeemed people. Israel and all who are joined to Israel is the subject of this song. Nobody else. Next in verse 6 is a statement that might seem to be synonymous with the previous one, but it's not. That God sends down to the grave, the Hebrew is Sheol, and he brings up from the grave, is speaking of his control, not just over life and death, but that he can take the dead at his will and resurrect them to new life. Jehovah decides who will have little, who will have much who will be lowly, who will be set up on high. In other words, this is talking about the area of human social status and human prosperity. And we see in verse 8 that just because the poor may begin life as the poor, that doesn't automatically mean they're going to remain that way. Conversely, the rich may be born into wealth. That doesn't automatically mean they're going to always remain honored leaders or aristocrats. The Lord can and does personally intervene and balance things out. I think of all the things America stands for, this biblically-based Judeo-Christian principle is one of our greatest and is maybe most responsible for our abundance here. We hold that all men have the right, if not the duty, to become all they can be. And that hard work and God's grace can take a person coming from the humblest of beginnings and elevate him to prominence. In fact, we're a nation who roots 
for the least among us to succeed and applauds the underdog who overcomes and achieves victory. Of the many ideals and principles that will never allow Islam and Judeo-Christianity to reconcile, this is a chief one that is rarely ever expressed or talked about. In Islam, the poor are ordered by Allah to remain poor. And the rich are ordered to remain rich. The lowly are born lowly. And they're there to serve those who are in power. The Quran says that this is necessary. Because alms, charity, to the poor is a requirement to go to heaven. So if there's no poor then the well-to-do can't give any alms, and thus they can't go to heaven. So understand that all this nonsense about the reason that Islamic societies around the world are angry is because of their poverty is just that, nonsense. Certainly the poor Muslims want and need food and housing, but they want it from their leaders. And the leaders only know one way to attain and maintain their wealth, and that's to take it from somebody else. The next part of verse 8 involves the use of a very rare Hebrew word that's not all that well understood. And I hope I even pronounce it right. Matsuch. Matsuch. It's usually translated to pillars just like we read it in our complete Jewish Bible. But the word is also used for molten core. Now we could talk about this verse for a long time because of all the various scholarly opinions about it, but I'm just going to give you my personal view on it and you can take it for what it's worth. I think the point is that Hannah is declaring that the Lord devised the very plan and structure of planet Earth. For me, the molten core meaning is probably more correct than translating it to pillars. Even though the ancients didn't know it then, our world is really little more than a thin crust or hard layer that sits on top of a fiery, hot, molten core of liquid rock and metal. And we now know that this molten core is not just an interesting anomaly for our planet. It's one of the several keys that allows life to exist and flourish. Our molten car... A core, rather, operates much like the alternator that produces electricity in your car. Using the rotation of the earth, it generates a magnetic field that is converted into electricity. Without our magnetic field, we would be as sterile as the moon or Mars. Because this magnetic field that we have all around the earth behaves as a shield that deflects the enormous amount of ultra-deadly cosmic rays that pervades our entire universe. This same molten core affects ocean temperatures, 
and thus creates the all-important currents that are vital to the ocean's food chain, and so much more. For me, this verse is explaining that God planned and built our planet and especially prepared it for life. It was no accident of mathematical, mathematical probabilities. The Lord is in charge and sovereign over all physical processes. And of course this reality is going to play a vital role in the end of days. As the Lord uses both those physical processes to pour out his wrath. And as he alters many of those physical processes. So that life on our planet that's dependent upon these is nearly extinguished. Thus far, Hannah's song has spoken of the Lord's absolute control over life and death, social status, poverty and abundance, what happens after death, who's powerful, who's feeble, who has dignity, who suffers humiliation, who has sufficient food, who goes hungry, and then lastly, over the physical processes of our planet. Now the matter shifts to the spiritual plane. In verse 9, the issue is good versus evil. And the idea is that those who are good are those who are faithful to Yehovah. Those who are evil are those who are not faithful to Him. The good will have their journey through life charted out and guided by the Lord. The wicked will walk in darkness. The word used for darkness here is a familiar one for us. It is choshek. Choshek doesn't mean nighttime. Okay? Or merely the absence of physical light, like what naturally happens when the sun goes down. Choshek is an ominous term that is the opposite of divine enlightenment. Choshek is the lack of spiritual light, not the lack of physical light. When that great darkness came over Pharaoh's Egypt as a plague, it was not that it was a long-lasting time without sunlight. It was a spiritual darkness that enveloped them. It was the essence of evil. Thus, in that story, the term Hoshek was employed. The final stanza of verse 9 cautions that God can't be defeated by human strength or determination. Rather, anyone who comes against the Lord will be shattered. The idea of shattered is utter, complete, and alterable destruction. Hannah says that the Lord will thunder against those rebels from his heaven. The Hebrew word for thunder is ra'am. And it means more, really, to rage or, or, or cause to tremble then it indicates the clapping of thunder of a, of, a, of a storm although it can be used in that way too biblically thunder often precedes or accompanies God's wrath just as when we hear thunder we know a storm is coming so it is that heavenly thunder 
is that event or series of events that portends the onset of God's anger. The ancient oriental mind had that same kind of mental picture that we do about thunder. It's startling. And we flinch involuntarily at the sound of it. Some of us practically hit the deck or immediately break into flight when it's especially near and violent. Thus, before God's wrath appears physically on earth, verse 10 demonstrates that first... God's wrath thunders in heaven. The hope for believers is that we're sufficiently spiritually aware that we can detect the Lord thundering in His wrath in heaven so that we can warn others or prepare, or both, for His coming earthly wrath. And maybe even change our ways, repent, and avert the consequences of it. We are also told that Yehovah judges the ends of the earth. There's nowhere to escape. It'll do you no good to dig a deep hole and stock it with food and climb into it. It'll do no good to move to the outback in Australia. There is no escaping God's anger. Especially if he wills it that you are going to experience it. Hannah's song ends with the purpose for which the Lord relieved the burden of her barren condition and gave her Samuel. It was to anoint a king over Israel. But this king is to be unlike kings brought to power by men. This king will be God's king. And thus the Lord will lend some of his power to this anointed king. And when we realize that the Hebrew word for anointed is Mashiach, which in certain contexts we translate as Messiah, then we see that for the first time in the Bible now, here, the concept of Messiah being connected with king is presented. This makes Hannah's song even more indispensable and central in the history of salvation. Thus it is a tragedy. What a tragedy that the church so long ago abandoned the Old Testament such that this very clear and early prophetic statement and understanding about the source of salvation is all but forgotten. Now next week, I'm going to make a connection for you between Hannah's song and a section of the New Testament that I think is going to startle many of you. In fact, I think it's going to cause you to think about certain aspects of the end times in ways you've maybe never before considered them.